Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am going to be interviewing a very interesting gentleman named Mike May. Mike is the chief evangelist of Good Maps. Um, he was the founder and former CEO of Sendero Group. Uh, he is a Paralympic uh, downhill skier and world record holder. He has started a number of companies. Uh, he's done uh, quite a number, <laughs> quite a number of interesting things. So our conversation is going to go a lot of different directions. Mike, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Sean. It's it's hard to introduce you. <laughs> and look at your your uh, your biography, and uh, you seem to have seems like what you've touched turned to gold. So um, I'm sure this will be a, a be an awesome awesome conversation. So um, I was hoping you could just start off by sharing with us the story of your vision loss from uh, from a young child and to to where you are now. Like what happened, and and uh, you know anything you want to share along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a a unique story in that I was sighted until age three and a half, and I went blind from a chemical explosion, just bizarre circumstances, blew me up and left me with over 300 stitches in my little three-year-old body, and I was lucky to live. I was totally blind with a little bit of light perception for my most of my life, and I just grew up accepting blindness. I had a wonderful mother who didn't pamper me partially because she had five kids and it's hard to pamper anybody when you've got that many little ones running around and also single mom with the job. So I grew up in that kind of very positive uh, influence. Then coincidentally at the age of 46, I was offered a stem cell transplant. It was a combination of a cornea transplant and stem cell. And between the two operations, I got a little bit of vision back. And all of a sudden I went from no vision to low vision and started this whole journey of figuring out, well, what is that about? And what can I see or not see? And it's more complicated to explain how that evolved, but um, that happened in 2001. And uh, I've been learning about uh, vision, low vision, and how that works with um, my Braille and, and mobility skills ever since. So the, the surgery, you know, when you talk about the chemical burns, the corneas, and you have uh, this surgery done 43 years later, um, is it that your brain has to relearn to see? Is that, I mean, because the the art, the eye, everything's, I say, fine. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong there. Uh, but can you comment on that a little bit? Well, I always thought of vision as low, medium, and high. And as I learned, uh, it's much different than that. It's much more complicated. And so my vision turned out to be a very interesting hybrid in that my brain can detect motion extremely well. So if something's moving, I can see it better than if it's stationary. I can see colors really well, but I have no depth perception and no detail or face recognition. And so that makes for an interesting kind of vision from a functional standpoint, that means that I can't read print, I can't recognize faces. In terms of mobility, it means that I can't see the difference between a step and the pavement and a curb. And so 
I wouldn't do well to, to use my vision for mobility, at least not for finding obstacles and things in front of me. I wouldn't be able to see a gray pole if it was against a gray cement background. I learned well in, let's say, three to five years after having those operations that I really had to integrate my blindness skills and my low vision skills. Uh, it was kind of an interesting situation because when you, you get some vision back, you start thinking, okay, well, now that I can see, I'm going to operate as a low vision person. But as we know, and you know, not every low vision person operates the same. We all operate differently. No, and that, that's fair. I imagine there were certain things that were, some things are probably easier, but some things may, were any, was anything harder that you, when you got some vision back, it sounds, you know, uh, um, sounds strange that something things could be harder, but did you find anything um, harder or you preferred to do, you know, with no vision? Um, absolutely. Things were harder. Uh, part of it is that w when your brain hasn't had any visual input for 43 years, it's extremely overwhelming. So all visual imp visual input is, um, it's, it's like when you go into a restaurant and you don't like all the, you can't hear everybody's, um, you know, you're near a bar, let's say, and everybody's loud and you're leaning forward trying to detect what people are saying. You can't read their lips. And I find that a very stressful auditory situation. It was the same thing for vision. All of a sudden, my brain's being bombarded with all of this visual stuff. And, you know, a good 70% of our brain's capacity is working on visual information. And my brain wasn't used to that. So I was overwhelmed by everything visual. Well, that's fair. Um, and some things are coming back to me also, just as you're talking, because um, there's a book written about you I'd like to talk about called Crashing Through uh, a number of years ago. This was... <laughs> this is actually one of the first audiobooks I ever read. I actually got it on CD from my local library because I, uh, they had, they, uh, I discovered that they would rent, um, I rent these CDs. Um, and not, it's not that it's that old the book, but it was available on, on CD uh, at the time. And uh, I remember some of the stories that were told, you know, in the book about, you know, you in the car and, uh, vehicles, you know, passing by, and it was almost like, overwhelming. You would prefer to have your, your, you know, your eyes closed and whatnot. Um, can you talk a little bit about the book? Like, how did the book become a thing? There was a lot of interest in my story because there's very few people who had had a vision restoration after long-term blindness that was documented on the order of 20 people over a couple hundred years. So I had tons of media attention. There was a Nature Neuroscience article in 2003 that generated a lot of media. So next thing I know, I had uh, Robert Curson called me up and said he wanted to, to consider doing a, a book about me. And I said, I, I wasn't interested. And he was very persistent. And um, I agreed to see him in person. He came out, we talked. And shortly after that, um, he, his previous book called Shadow Divers hit the best-selling list. And, uh, and then he wrote an article about me to kind of test the waters and came out in uh, Esquire magazine and it won a national magazine award. And so all of these factors kind of pointed me to the fact that this, this was a very skilled, 
writer and that if I was going to have anybody write my story, he was the one. And so um, he, he did that. It took a couple of years before um, all the interviewing of me and everybody that I knew, because I was worried that he'd get the blindness piece wrong. Uh, but he interviewed every blind friend and colleague and um, family member. He does amazing research. And when the book came out in 2007, it was a bestseller. And it was uh, among the top 50 books on Amazon for that year, um, up against books like, you know, Bill Clinton's book and a lot of other famous ones. What were you worried about that he would get the blindness wrong? What do you mean by that? Well, as, as anybody who's blind that's had a story done about them in the media, things often get sensationalized. And so I was worried about that. Uh, it was a very deep, sensitive subject. And since I'm, I'm working in the blindness industry with my navigation technology, I thought, well, boy, if he screws it up, this could ruin my livelihood because different organizations like the National Federation of the Blind or others could be really annoyed with me. And uh, that's not a good thing when you're trying to work in that industry, not to, to mention just from a personal standpoint, I don't want them saying things that are incorrect, which can happen in the media. Yeah, yeah the media can do that. <laughs> you can, can say some things that are incorrect sometimes. Uh, you know, um, I had a, um, a guest on the podcast previously um, and she was saying how sometimes when people get sensationalized, you know, it has a double-edged sword, right? Um, in some ways, it's it's encouraging for people who have low vision or blindness say, "Wow, look at all the great things that people can do." Um, but then, you know, the flip side of that uh, that coin is that when you're saying, "Wow, look at all these you know people doing amazing things," they're hiking the top of the mountains and setting world records, and I'm struggling to you know not, mm -hmm. not walk walk not walk not knock over a wine glass when I go home or or some of the basic uh, functions in life too, right? So it's it's a double-edged sword um, and uh, you know, it's, it's important to, you know, point with the human side of, of people who are superhuman, I guess. You're Sorry, absolutely right, Sean. And, and that's, that is the issue that um, most people are, are newly blind and they're struggling and they hear a super blind story and they just, they get discouraged. And the last thing I'd ever want to do is um, have that sort of influence. But, you know, in your book, I remember, that too. And this is, this is probably uh, a dozen years ago when I read this, uh, I remember stories about, uh, you know, knocking over wine glasses and stuff too, right? <laughs> I've certainly knocked over my fair share of wine glasses as well, being visually impaired. Uh, although I've migrated to stainless steel wine glasses, just to, uh, mm. my, my porcelain floor is in the kitchen is not forgiving. Um, so the stainless steel wine glasses <laughs> tend, tend to work well. Uh, you talked about your, navi uh, your navigation um, software, uh, or technology. Is this good maps? Well, it's been everything all along. I've, I mean, as a blind person, there's nothing more important than how well you get around. I think we should have um, a scale of life acuity rather than visual acuity, because your ability to experience life both recreationally and in terms of career is based on how well you get around, how good is your mobility, your orientation, and your your freedom and enjoyment about getting out and about. And so of uh, 1995-ish, so when I first started working on accessible navigation, and that evolved through various formats, including launching the Sendero Group in 2000, um, different platforms. But the bottom line was always the same, which is give me some location information 
and some routing directions. And I have alternatives to uh, the, the passerby on the street who may or may not know the information that I need, and they're not a very reliable form of, um, of, of directions. So how does Good Maps work, I guess? Uh, like I'm not familiar with Good Maps. You can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, the, the uh, mobile phone apps uh, have been adding to more and more accessibility, nav- navigation accessibility products over the last almost 10 years. I think we came out with the first one in 2012 on the iPhone, which is called CNI GPS in the US and Canada. And that um, that's still available. And uh, then I left the navigation industry for a couple of years to do some nonprofit management uh, projects at the Seattle Lighthouse and then Envision in Wichita, Kansas. And when the company Good Maps was spun off from American Printing House for the Blind in 2019, I realized this was a great opportunity to get back into it, start afresh and do something new. And uh, so I was offered the opportunity to join, did that and have been working on their app, which is similar to others in terms of outdoor navigation, but the real emphasis and the pioneering effort is an indoor navigation because most buildings are not mapped. So they have to be scanned and mapped and then made available for indoors where GPS doesn't work, but you want the same sort of ability to get directions when you're walking around inside a building. That makes a lot of sense. I never really thought about, you know, that aspect of things uh, inside a building and how, yeah, it's a whole different problem that, um, you know, Google Maps and stuff hasn't necessarily solved, I guess, right? So, no, that's interesting. Um, getting around, though, is something that is not, I don't say it's foreign to you. I mean, you were a, you know, you are a, a Paralympic, uh, I believe you're still a record holder, or is that correct? A yes. skiing record holder? Yeah. So, you know, you back in the, the 80s, I'd like to say, um, that you were a Paralympic downhill skier and then record holder. Um how did that come to be? Like, how did, you know, I feel like skiing is not the most obvious sport that would uh, attract some, it's not the lowest hanging fruit in terms of sports for people who um, have vision loss. So how did you get into skiing? And then, you know, what did it take to, you know, get to that level? Well, you're right. Skiing is a very visual sport. And so that's part of what appealed to me is I love problem solving and if somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to probably try to do it. Um, I mean, there's other visual sports like tennis or ping pong. uh, They're pretty tough to do, but skiing is a visual sport that has the, the ability to do it quite effectively as a blind person. It becomes more of a team sport because your guide is part of your team. Whereas for a sighted person, they're on their own. They might be skiing with their friends, but if you want to really have fun and have a successful experience skiing, it's all about having a good guide. And so once I, I didn't start skiing until I was 27, but once I did, I was hooked. And then recreational skiing grew into racing and, and then racing into speed skiing and off I went and I'm still doing it as much as I can. But how does the communication work back and forth between you and a guide when you are, 
you know, moving at, you know, X number of miles an hour. I don't know what, how fast people when they ski, but it's not slow. Like, how does that communication work? Yeah, the speed is definitely a factor because things happen quickly as opposed to walking or even jogging. Uh, When we first started competing in the early 80s, most racing was done with the guide behind the blind skier because it's a lot easier for the guide. They're looking forward. They see the blind person. They tell them left, right. And that's how they were recreational skiing. And if you don't have a lot of precision involved, that works reasonably well. The blind skier can hear you because the guide's voice is pointing at them. We found that with practice and experience, it was better to have the guide in front, but it was harder on the guide because they had to look back and look forward simultaneously. And in order for you to hear their voice, they had to be throwing their voice backwards. So it took some real technique development in order to figure out how to, to do that. But once you had a good guide trained from in front, then it was much better as a blind skier because you had combination of their voice to follow and the sound of their skis, which uh, transmits a lot of really valuable information in terms of the, the, the uh, aspect of the snow. Is it ice or is it fluffy? Is it a bump? You hear all of this stuff in the guide's voice and from their skis when they're in front of you that you wouldn't get when it was the other way around. And when we first competed in 1982 in Switzerland, before it was the Paralympics, they used to call it the World Winter Games for the Disabled. Uh, We won three gold medals handily, and we were the only one with the guide in front. So you can imagine what happened in 1984 when we went back to the next Winter Games in Austria. Everybody had switched around, and my competition was much stiffer. In fact, Instead of winning three gold, I won three bronze in that uh, competition in Austria in 84. That sounds like one of those uh, Fosbury flop moments, right? Back when (laughs) Fosbury was the first one to go over the high high jump uh, bar backwards. And all of a sudden, the next Olympics, everybody's doing it, right? So, uh, no, that's that's interesting. It probably speaks to your, uh, you know, the the entrepreneurial and pioneering side of of, of who you are. Um, Maybe this is a stupid question, but is there not, is it not allowed to, you know, integrate some sort of headset into your helmet so that the guide could guide you that way? Well, as techie as I am, Sean, I tried and found that I gained some and I lost some. So if you have a headset uh, or a speaker on you or a speaker on the back of the guide, it takes away from those environmental sounds that were so important in following the guide. And uh, some blind skiers do use electronic devices. I don't find them uh, particularly effective because of that uh, trade-off. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the, um, uh, you know, the Bose headphones that Bose made and they teamed up with yeah. Microsoft. Yeah, the, you know, the, those are they're sort of the headphones, the, the sunglasses. That uh, Have you tried those before? Have you seen those where they... they the speaker is basically built into the the arms of the sun of the glasses. Uh, oh yeah, so, I have some, yeah. sitting, some some sitting here right on my desk. Yeah. Some Bose frames, Tempos. I'm a huge fan of the aftershocks, which uh, go right in front of your ears, and um, <clears throat> those are great. But you still, if you're hearing the sound from those things right next to your ears, it's going to mask 
the environmental sounds from the guide's skis and from their voice. Because when they're swinging their head around, you get some spatial information that you just can't get electronically remotely. Uh, and that's fair. And I think that, uh, you know, um, if you, I mean, when somebody, if you've trained this way for, for years, then I think that's uh, probably hard to make that switch, right? Um, just switching gears a little bit. Um, you are, well, you're the only person I've ever talked to. I think you've met any U.S. presidents, but you've met five of them. <laughs> so so how, how did that, uh, how did that come to be? And uh, I don't know if you have any, any stories to share there or, or any favorites among the five, five that you met? Uh, well, um, other than Reagan, I've only met Democrats. So that might tell you something. The first one was Jimmy Carter. I worked at the CIA uh, during graduate school in Washington, D.C., so the meet and greet with him was just a handshake and a hello. Um, he came to the CIA for some meetings and I was there and, and I had a chance to shake his hand. The Secret Service did come up to me ahead of time and they said, uh, will your dog bite the president? And I said, well, she won't bite anybody else. I don't know why she'd bite the president. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not the joking type. So um, I'm, I don't think I got a smile out of that. Um, Ronald Reagan was was a pretty significant meet because before the Paralympics, uh, I went to Sarajevo and skied a demonstration run, uh, kind of ad hoc in, uh, in Sarajevo. And because of that notoriety, I was invited with the able-bodied Olympic team to the White House. Uh, and Ronald Reagan acknowledged me in his speech so it's, it's pretty surreal to be standing there listening to a president drone on and all of a sudden, you know, you hear this person say, and I'd like to offer a special note of congratulations to Mike May and Ron Savaliolo. Mike skis better blind than most sighted people. Your skill and your spirit are, and he goes on and says more about that. That was pretty amazing. And uh, years later, I was able to get a video from the Ronald Reagan Library of that speech and that uh, acknowledgement. And then I met uh, Bill Clinton when he came to NASA, um, the Moffett Field in California when I was working at Arkenstone. And he just landed there and he came around and did a meet and greet and uh, uh, was able to take a picture with him and, and, my, and my boys, young boys at the time. Uh, very significant time was uh, when I first met President Obama. Uh, he and, I was invited to the White House um, several times, one for a meeting with him where I sat down with 10 disabled folks representing different disabilities. And he asked the question of what can we do to radically improve the lives of people who are uh, disabled? And when you dig into that deeper, it's a um, it's a hard question to answer. There's not, there's not a moonshot that works for everybody. All the disabilities are different. And how do you find common threads and what do you do? And then that followed up with a number of other meetings. Uh, then I was invited to the Paralympics to be a representative of the White House in 2010 in Vancouver. And after that, we went to the White House and met with uh, President Obama and, and Michelle Obama the Bidens and a couple of other folks. 
Uh, so that's really when I met Joe Biden. I haven't met him as a president, but I technically I could say I've met five presidents. So pretty just part of it, just being in the right place at the right time and having some good contacts. There was a wonderful guy named Kareem Dale, who was um, head of disability affairs for President Obama, and um, I got to be good friends with him. And he certainly was instrumental in getting me into some of these meetings. The CIA. <laughs> what, you know, can you just talk with the CIA? I didn't realize, I, I, I shouldn't say I didn't realize, this This came up uh, in the past. I think this came up in your book. So it's certain to jog a memory here, but just in the research for this conversation, this didn't come up. Can you tell me about what you were doing at the CIA? I was a political risk analyst on Africa. Uh, I was the first blind person to work at the CIA. They now have a whole department dealing with disability. So I got to be a pioneer once again. Uh, Another blind person was hired maybe six months after I was there. And she stayed on and, and worked her whole career at the CIA. So it was a challenging job because at the time that I worked there, 78, 79, almost everything was hard copy print. So when an analyst would go into work each day, you'd get a stack of cable traffic uh, a foot high. And so how do you deal with that as a blind person? And the answer to that was that when I got hired, uh, Admiral Turner, the the head of the CIA, he came to me and he said, we want this to be successful. We will do whatever it takes uh, so that you have an accessible job. <clears throat> you let me know if, if there's any problem. So when you have that top-down kind of support, you can imagine uh, it, it might be tough, but it's going to work out. And it did. It's, no, that's pretty pretty amazing. Um, it, it's I guess for anybody listening to our conversation, it's uh, starting to become obvious why um, someone wanted to write a book about you. <laughs> you, you know, you're, you, I feel like uh, any one of these uh, chapters of your life could you know be a book uh, on its own. Um, life today, Mike. What's you know now that you have you know for the last twenty years have recouped some vision. Um, you know, what is life like today? And you know, what are things that you uh, maybe still find easier to do uh, without vision or prefer to? Uh, how has the you know, family dynamic changed, if at all? Um, just, you know, that it wasn't this, I get the impression it wasn't this panacea, like, wow, I got some vision back and, and life is miraculous and everything's wonderful. Um, so I guess, you know, it's a very long drawn out question, <laughs> I tend to do that, but, uh, you know, what's changed and, and what hasn't changed? Well, key to figuring out the new vision experience was learning something that I already knew in dealing with accessibility. And that is, there's not one thing that does everything. You, you have to have an accessible toolbox. So, you know, I've got MP3 players like the Victor stream and I have the apps on my phone and different headsets for different situations. And the list goes on. I have a toolbox. So with vision, it was the same thing. I learned after a while, oh yeah, guess what? I need an accessible vision toolbox. So for example, my new vision was good when it came to landmarks. So I'm walking down the street, I'm using my dog or my cane for what's in front of me the curb, the steps, the holes, the obstacles, 
I don't even try to use my vision for that because I made the mistake of doing it and, and getting myself into trouble and having some accidents. But I learned that, hey, if I just rely on my blindness skills, I can look around, I can see, oh, there's a yellow house. So that means I need to turn left at this street. So I used my vision for landmark information. Another good example is walking through an airport and I'm looking for uh, a restroom. Um, I, you know, you can listen, you can smell, you, you, we all have our blindness techniques for finding these things, but I could use my vision and see, okay, there's a doorway and I get a little bit closer and I could see, I see some sort of dark plaque that's right at chest level, which is normally where those plaques are, but I couldn't read it, but I could reach up and feel with my hands and read the braille, men or women. So that's a perfect example of using vision to locate that plaque, because how do you know where it is otherwise, if you're totally blind? You don't. That's a problem with braille doorways and braille elevators and all these things. You don't know where the braille is. So the integration factor with vision is something that I had to learn to do. And I still find different situations where I uh, find the best of both worlds. And that's been a, a big part of, uh, of how it's worked into my life after 20 years. And um, I still have firsts, not as many as I used to have. You know, the first time I saw stars, the first time I saw a person, all these things, um, you know, but <clears throat> sometimes there still are first and I, I uh, still enjoying those things. It's the, the, the low vision is now more in the background and uh, I, I'm a braille reader. I use a dog. So I'm, a, and when somebody says, are you, you know, what's your blindness? And I just say, I'm blind. Um, I, I don't try to explain the whole story. Otherwise I'd have to hand them a book and say, here, read this. You're one of the few people who could actually could hand them a book though. <laughs> and say, here, here, read this. Right. So, um, no, listen, Mike, this is, this has been fun. Um, you, uh, you know, your stories are, are certainly, uh, uh, inspirational and, um, and, you know, and been down to earth and, and seeing the down to earth side of you at the same time, I think is, is nice and something that, uh, the audience, um, myself included certainly enjoy. So I just want to thank you for, uh, for taking the time to uh, share your stories with us today. Yeah, and Sean, I think it's important to note that um, in terms of getting around, the ultimate goal, the life goal for me was to have GPS and these apps be free and ubiquitous. So ubiquitous GPS is around the world, but it's not indoors yet. So that's why that's a new frontier to provide that navigation indoors. It's not always free. There can be costs associated with these things. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of indoor navigation and making this available worldwide and, and making it free. So it's just a tool that we have along with our cane or our dog as part of our accessible toolbox. How can people learn more about and, you know, Good Maps and, and what you're doing and, and get involved? Yeah, goodmaps.com. Uh, the app is called Explore, so you can get the app for free. Good Maps, one word, space explore in Android and iOS. Crashingthrough.com will get you to uh, my story and other personal links and videos and so forth. Oh, great. So and we'll, in, in the show notes, we'll link to uh, those resources. So listen, I want to thank you, Mike, for, uh, for joining me here today. It's certainly been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Sean.